Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Today our guest is Wyoming-based writer Craig Johnson. Craig Johnson is the New York Times bestselling author of the Walt Longmire mystery novels, which are the basis for Longmire, the Netflix original drama. Craig Johnson has received many awards for his books. He lives in Ucross, Wyoming, population 25. His latest novel in the Longmire series is Daughter of the Morning Star. The next book uh, coming out in September will be called Helen Beck. And uh, we welcome in uh, to the program uh, Craig Johnson. Thank you so much. Hey, great to be here. Thanks. I do have to inform you, though, that the population boom after 40 years has finally hit you across Wyoming, and we now have a population of 26. 26. So I... We are. We're just, I'm telling you, you know, canyons of steel. I'm telling you, we're just shooting out in all directions. <laughs> Did somebody move in? Did somebody get bored? What, what happened? You know, it's a mystery right now, like that, which is you know, kind of my stock and trade. Like that. But uh, I have been talking among, you know, all of our, you know, uh, our, 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 our neighbors, and, and none of us can figure out where that extra person is. We don't aren't quite sure what's going on here. <laughs> Nobody had any new children or anything like it, and so we're not quite sure. If the, yeah. you know, the, the census department just decided it was time for a little bit of change, like had to kind of boost us up a little or what. But uh, <laughs> hey, we'll take it. We're fine. <laughs> <laughs> now you know, I, I I thought I'd read that somewhere, that extra person, <laughs> and and then I doubted myself. Well, it made all the news. I mean, it it's made all the news. Stuff, That's right. You know, I mean, when you get right down to it, you know. <laughs> Um, and, and so I went. I went to you know to the source, Wikipedia, and uh, uh-huh. they're, they're still saying twenty five. And so on, all all my promotional materials, I sent out an urgent correction. You know, use twenty five, not twenty six. So twenty six is, well, is true. I've, okay. I've got to, I'll have to change now my bio yeah. uh, in all the books. I'll have to bump it up like I guess to twenty six. Like I guess I'll take whatever the state will give me. Like that's this. right. <laughs> um, while I was on Wikipedia checking that number, which uh, Wikipedia has it wrong right at this point, um, you know, it, uh, it went to Ucross, of course, um, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, as as you know from Wikipedia, you go to a place and they they list notable. Persons and Ucross has a notable person, and that's you. Well, there are a couple. Like, there's actually Raymond Plank, like, who was actually um, the founder of the Ucross Foundation, which is an artist's retreat, which is kind of actually world renowned. Like that, um, which is is kind of nice to have, like, at, you know, across the the way there. But uh, yeah, I'm I'm kind of the other uh, the other. Uh, critical individual here. It's kind of fun, you know, because the the, uh, the the residencies that they have over there, it's marvelous, marvelous uh, foundation like that, and uh, they do a lot of good work and a lot of really spectacular authors and and, and artists and musicians have like you know passed through uh, the foundation over there like that. But it's, it's also interesting like that because every once in a while um, they'll have an artist like that who comes out here to Wyoming to just get away, get away from all of it from either you know either coast like that, and they just they just want some peace and some quiet, and they get out here and they're here for like you know about a week or so and then suddenly we hear a you know knocking on the door like that and uh, i'll go over and it'll be somebody who's maybe had a little bit too much peace and quiet and they're like hi <laughs> hi are you I, you're a writer right i just thought maybe we could have a cup of coffee and sit down and talk <laughs> so, sometimes the, the the sound of the wind and the quiet maybe gets to be a little bit too much for him every once in a while <laughs> is is that a welcome intrusion or is it not oh sure you know it's kind of funny like that because since the you know, with the success of the books, like getting the TV show and all of that, you know, I've actually had some of my neighbors, they'll ask me, they'll say, you know, every once in a while somebody will 
pull up here in Ucross, you know, and see somebody and say, hey, you know, just wondering, do you, uh, you know, do you want us to tell people, you know, where you live, like that, or, you know, what would you like us to do? And I'm like, well, you know, if they make it all the way to Ucross, um, you can go ahead and tell them where it is that I live. And an awful lot of the time, what it turns out to be is a lot of uh, of foreign uh, readers, like that. The books have been translated into about 27 languages, and so I, I, we get visitors from from France and from Italy and Germany and places like that. And it's kind of interesting because you know they they don't they don't have any qualms about you know like trying to find you cross Wyoming and then just driving up a random ranch road and you know knocking on a door and saying hey I read your book <laughs> so generally I'll sit out there on the front porch with them like that and then finish up and uh, and I'll hand them a can of Rainier beer I'll get to take uh, to take home with them <laughs> as a bit of a souvenir like that but uh, yeah it's 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 kind of a you know a, a good life actually. <laughs> Uh, to what do you attribute the popular, extreme popularity in, in say, France of, of the books? You know, a lot of that I got to give credit to. You know, I've got a pretty fantastic uh, French publisher, and and maybe even more importantly, a really fantastic translator. And what I've discovered um, in this, you know, this 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 uh, trail of you know having books, you know, translated in different languages, is, is that if you have a good translator, you get a good book. Um, if you don't have a good translator, you don't get a good book. And so, you know, it's been interesting to see when I get a lot of contact, you know, with the translators. Generally, that means that they're really into the books and they really want to make sure that you know that, that it, you know, they produce a good book. Um, and then there are others that I've I've never spoken with at all like that. And so that that's what I've noticed is is that you know just the the quality of the product. They want to make sure that you know that everything that's in the books gets translated properly, you know, to to get the message of the books and the characters and the locale and all that across. And and that can be a little bit of a challenge sometimes like that. But uh, like I said, I've been extraordinarily fortunate with a, a number, you know, of different uh, translators like that. But certainly my French translator, Sophie Aslanides, like it actually came over and spent, you know, a, uh, um, you know, about a month and a half, I think, here at the ranch, you know, just, you know, kind of soaking up uh, the area just to see what exactly it was that I was writing about. And that, that really, really makes a difference. These days, another factor is uh, you know who reads your book, who 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 does it for the for the audiobook, right? And and how how good or bad that is. Oh, absolutely! Look at and I you know received a blessing in that you know in from uh, from of all places uh, a fellow you might have heard of uh, Tony Hillerman. Like at uh, mm-hmm. a number of years back, um, I had a short story that was in Cowboys and Indians magazine and it won the Tony Hillerman um, Mystery Short Story Award. Like that, and Tony actually one of the big things was you got to go have dinner um, with Tony Hillerman. At that point in time, I was you know uh, negotiating the the recorded books contract, you know, and and he said, well, who's going to record your books and I said well I, I I don't I don't know you know I don't have any idea and he said well see if you can get George Guadal George is you know pretty spectacular and you know he's done all of mine and I don't have any problems with him at all so the next day I was talking to the audiobooks people recorded books and they they said well we've got a couple of different readers we're looking at one of them is George Guadal and I said him and they said you don't want to hear the others and I said no no if he's good enough for Tony Hillerman he's good enough for me like that and uh it began a, a wonderful relationship you know and George you know who's won all of these you know Audis you know all of these awards you know for all of the recordings that he's done you know and uh he's just a, a fantastic guy and a consummate performer just an amazing 
amazing performer. And there was a a big uh, article, you know, in the New York Times uh, where he did an interview. You know, it was called King of the Audiobooks, I think it was. And they finally got to the end, and they asked him. They said, "Well, yeah, you've done like War and Peace, you know, and all of these like incredible pieces of literature. You know, what what are your favorite books to record?" And he didn't even pause, and he goes, "You know what? There are these books about this Wyoming sheriff." That- <laughs> I really like, and I don't think that that was what the New York Times was expecting him to say like that. But uh, you know, I, I really appreciate that from George. But he's uh, he's just an amazing, an amazing performer, and I I utilize him myself like that. You know, people often will ask. You know, they'll say like, you know, well, you're you know, you're in. 17 books, an 18th book coming out in, you know, in September, you know, how do you keep track? You know, how do you keep track of the characters and, you know, plots and uh, all of these details, you know, with all of these characters? And one of the ways that I do that, you know, is, you know, it's the same thing in Utah as it is here in Wyoming. Like, you know, if you want a gallon of milk, you got to go drive, you know, 30 miles. Like, well, I utilize that time by taking the audio books and, you know, putting the CDs, you know, into, you know, into my truck and just listening. Like, if I have a, a book that harkens back, you know, to you know a reason, you know another book. Okay, well then I can go back and I can listen. And it's kind of wonderful to have George read your book to you. Not bad at all. Mm-hmm. Does that? Uh, do you make any adjustments based on that in your writing? Oh, you know, I, you know, I, 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 every once in a while, my wife will say, "You've got you know too many theirs in this one paragraph. It's going to be hard for George, or else there'll be some you know language problems like that because there's a lot of Cheyenne and uh, Crow, uh, not not even to mention the Basque, you know, and some of the other you know uh, languages that are in the book, and that makes it a little bit difficult for for George. But you know, he rises to the occasion pretty easily like that. It's uh, it's actually he's a you know he, he he's such he's so studious like that he does so much research, you know, before he ever even sits down to even think about, you know, recording a book. I did do him a dirty trick one time, like at one of the first, you know, uh, um, conversations I had with him, you know, in the studio there in New York. Um, I was just listening to him, like, at, as he recorded, like, at, when he finished up, I was like, my gosh, like, you've got the, the most amazing voice, you know, the, the, the breath and the width and the depth and um, the agility of your voice is amazing. You must be an incredible singer. And he said, oh, no, I, I, I don't sing. You don't ever want to hear me sing. Okay. Well, in the very next book, Dark Horse, um, <laughs> I had Walt, you know, in a cheap motel out on the Powder River, and uh, um, these guys are playing the AM radio next door, and they're playing Eddie Arnold. Cattle Call, which I don't know if you recall or not, but it's the, yeah. the one with the yodeling in it. The, oh, yeah. George calls me up on the phone and goes, you dirty rat. And I was like, what, George? He goes, first time I tell you I don't sing, and the next thing, the very next book, you have Walt not only singing, but yodeling. Like, and so I don't think he's ever completely forgiven me for that just yeah. yet. <laughs> That's your prerogative as a writer, I guess. Um, <laughs> well, you've got to have a little bit of freedom. You That's know? right. That's right. Uh, I want to talk. have you talk a little bit about voice. I was interested in reading an interview where you said you you, you, know, you pride yourself in uh, not saying he said, she said. It. You, you want the, the, the voice. <laughs> the voice to, to be distinctive enough that people know exactly who you're, who, who's speaking. I hope that's the case. Like, you know, every once in a while, somebody will write and say that they have a little bit of a problem, um, you know, d- discerning like that. But, you know, that that's relatively rare. Um, you know, for me, it's it's just a lot better process um, when you're looking for that distinction in the voices, like uh, to have even, you know, just a physical action or something, you know, to have like Walt reach up and adjust his hat um, or something along those lines, rather than use those tag phrases, he said, she said, you know, and to me, you know, all that does is just remind 
remind you, you know, that you're reading a book. And, you know, and in many ways, you know, when I'm writing the Longmire books, what I, they're all in first person, you know, and so what I want the reader to do is basically fall into that world and not come back out. You know, I want them to be in that, that world for, you know, 352 pages. I want them to be, you know, it's almost as if they were to go into the, sit down at the Busy Bee Cafe and Walt Longmire were to come in and sit down next to them and say, let me tell you about what happened to me last month. You know, from that moment on, I don't want them to even realize that they're sitting there reading a book. I want them in Absaroka County. Hmm. Well, have you talk a little bit about uh, you know c- contrast uh, who you are now, where you are in your view of uh, I guess the, the place you're in versus when you first arrived. Um, t- tell us again uh, what brought you out to Wyoming. Well, you know, I, I delivered horses down here out of Montana, like, and I fell in love with the spot and thought this might be, you know, a really good place, like, to to build a ranch, like, and uh, you know, I, I didn't have enough money to buy one, like, and so you know, I foolishly thought that maybe I had enough money to, you know, build one, like, so I built as much as I could, and over the years have continued, you know, to to build on it as we go along, um, but yeah, it's you know, it's actually it's it's a wonderful place to be simply because. It does provide that 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 solitude, you know, that I I think that you know I kind of thrive on. I mean, whenever I'm out on tour, you know, and, and traveling around all over the country or overseas or places like that, it's it's spectacular to go out, you know, and see those places and you know and do all those things like that. But I I would find it very distracting um, if I was in those places, you know, because there would just be so much to do. Um, whereas here in Ucross, you know, the 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 options are kind of limited. Look at and so um, it, it forces me to sit in that chair. And, and and get me to write and uh, I'm making it sound like that's you know some kind of horrible thing that I have to you know work at or something and it's really not I mean I've assembled my life um, to the point of you know one of the great joys is to to go up into that loft and after I get the ranch all squared away look at you know go up and you know sit down and in that chair like that and you know dive off the board into Absaroka County. And, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, you know, in my life, has it changed very much? Well, I guess it has, like, in the sense that, you know, with the TV show, you know, and the books and all of that, somebody once asked me, they said, you know, well, how has your life changed, you know, after all of this? And I'm like, well, I can go into Ace Hardware and buy whatever it is that I need, you know, that's about <laughs> the extent of how far my life has changed. You know, it uh, it really hasn't changed all that much, but now I don't have to straighten nails, um, you know, on a work counter, like, uh, to, to have materials to work with, you know, when I'm working on the Ranch, but uh, but yeah, and it's a it's a good life too because it's the balance between um, you know a, a physical life which is out of doors. I mean, right now you know we're in like irrigation season, which you know I tend to refer to as the devil's handiwork simply because you know it's got three major components: hydraulic, mechanical, and and electrical. And if you get two of them to work, I guarantee you the third will fail. But uh, it, it's, it gets you outside, you know. And I I think that that's a good balance. Like if I had to sit in front of the computer twelve hours a day. I don't know if I would last very long like that. And so um, it's kind of a nice balance. And my wife probably is pretty good about, you know, knowing when that balance needs to be achieved. Like if I come back into the house and I'm all covered with mud and blood and and, and horse and everything else like that, you know, she'll say to me, go take a shower like that and go right, um, because that'll make everything much better. Did do uh, you must have had an idea of uh, you know Wyoming drew you out right from 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 back east? Has, has that idea, that ideal, that sense of place changed over time? Not particularly. I mean, I had you know family in the West, and you know was always drawn to the West like that, and um, 
you know, and finding this one little spot in Wyoming at the base of the Bighorn Mountains, you know, right here at the, you know, the Montana border and everything, you know, that, you know, it all kind of, you know, evolved the way that I hoped that it would. Um, and then, you know, of course, you know, the specifics of, you know, what it is that Walt does um, an awful lot of the time is what it is that I'm addressing. And, you know, when I first started writing the books, I was very, very careful. Like, I had to make sure that I did a lot of ride-alongs and I spent a lot of time with a lot of Wyoming sheriffs, like at Montana sheriffs, you know, just to see how they did exactly what it was that they did. And, you know, the character obviously has an arc, you know, and he's changed, you know, over, you know, a period of, you know, approaching, you know, 20 years, you know, of writing these books. Like, And so... You know, the character has to change. I'm kind of a firm believer in that. You know, when you write a series of books, um, you know, we've all started series of books where, you know, they start out gangbusters, but then after about five or six books, it seems like, you know, they're kind of repeating themselves or the characters, you know, really aren't evolving or changing. And I, I don't think that that's, a, you know, an honest portrayal, you know, of the human condition. You know, you, very rarely do you meet somebody and they're the same person they were 20 years ago. Um, and so I try and, like, work that into the storylines as much as possible. One of the things I did was do a format of, you know, the what I refer to as the Vivaldi, which is, you know, Walt, you know, it takes me four books to get through four seasons in Walt's life. So it takes me four books to get through, you know, one year of Walt's life. And so even after writing these books for 20 years, Walt's only five years older than when we first meet him, like in The Cold Dish, the very first Walt Longmire book. And uh, I don't know, at some point in time, I want to be older than Walt. And I don't know if I like the idea of that at all or not. <laughs> Well, uh, yeah, I'm sure you get this question a lot. I, I, I have to ask it, too. Um, how much of uh, Craig Johnson's in Walt Longmark? <laughs> well, my wife, Judy, once again, has the best phrase about that. She says, Walt is, who Walt, Walt is who Craig would like to be in 10 years. It's just he's off to an incredibly slow start. <laughs> um, you know, he, he's got a lot of really admirable you know, qualities. I mean, one of the biggest differences, of course, is I haven't had the tragedies in my life, like uh, you know, the forgings in fire that, you know, that Walt Longmire has. Um, but that's kind of what makes him interesting, like that is, you know, the fact that he, you know, he's not perfect, like that, and he goes through a great deal like that, but, you know, he, he keeps coming back up like that. I mean, the worst thing that can ever happen is if you do something wrong to have Walt Longmire coming after you because he's not going to stop. Um, and that makes him, you know, uh, an admirable character. I think he also has a, a deep understanding of, you know, of society and the culture, like in community. Um, I mean, he cares. He he really, really cares about the people, you know, whose laws that, you know, he enforces. Um, when I was doing ride-alongs with all these sheriffs, you know, the phrase that I would hear from them over and over again, my people, my people, you know, and uh, I don't know, there's a closeness, I think, you know, with sheriffing, you know, that may be a little bit different from a lot of other forms of law enforcement in the sense that, you know, it's the only elected law enforcement official in the United States, you know, so people are giving you something that's a very treasured thing, you know, in our, in our society, um, their vote. And so they're kind of investing in you. And so it's kind of interesting because, you know, people that would never walk into a police office in their lives will march right into a sheriff's office, you know, and, and, and pound on the desk and say, look, I voted for you and I'm having a problem here. And uh, that to me makes for a kind of a closer relationship um, with the community. And the community really is, you know, a, a, an essential part, I think, of the books and, and of that world. 
Um, I read that uh, I didn't know this award uh, existed. The Watson Award. It's the for the best sidekick uh, c- character in a, in a in a you know crime crime book. So uh, <laughs> uh, Henry Standingberg, a great character. Uh, I imagine he's changed over time. You 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 know you you have to you know characters have to have to mature and grow. Oh, absolutely. And he's based off of a good friend of mine. I mean, you know, one of the quotes that I use all the time is the one from Wallace Stegner on teaching and writing fiction, where he says, the greatest piece of fiction ever written is the disclaimer at the beginning of every book that says nobody in this book is based off of anybody alive or dead and what a crock that is. I mean, that's your job to go find interesting people and put them in your books. And where my ranch is located, it's just to the south of the Northern Cheyenne and the Crow Reservation. And so, you know, it's an occupational hazard in the sense that when you live in the least populated state, you know, in America, there are only half a million people in the whole state of Wyoming. Like, if I put somebody in my books, everybody, you know, in the state knows who I'm talking about generally. Well, it's even worse up on the Northern Cheyenne Reservation, where I have a lot of friends and neighbors and practically family. Um, there are only 5,000 enrolled members of the Northern Cheyenne tribe. Like, and so when I use somebody from up there, they all know who I'm talking about. Um, as a matter of fact, the only problems I've ever had, you know, with, uh, with readers, you know, from up on the Northern Cheyenne and the Crow Reservation is them asking why it is I didn't use their real name whenever I put them in the books as a character. Um, but yeah, Henry is based off of a good friend of mine, Marcus Red Thunder, who is just a, an amazing individual um, with just a, an incredible you know, spiritual sensibility. And, you know, that's kind of important to me, too, like to make sure that, you know, that they're represented um, in that world. Um, if I was going to give you an accurate representation of, you know, Absaroka County, this fictitious county up here on the Montana-Wyoming border, it would be kind of criminal of me to not include them um, in that world, you know, because they, they, they the imprint that they make um, is, is pretty astounding. Like, and I just, you know, I don't think I could leave them out if I wanted to. <laughs> do you, do you uh, think about cultural appropriation? I imagine you have to think th- that through. It. Uh, tell me about that. Right. In the modern era, I mean, it's one of those things where, you know, you have to take that into consideration. You know, you really, really do. Um, you know, for me, it, it's, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, I have to look at it honestly and say, well, if I leave, leave those people and their culture and their society out, I'm, once again, I'm not giving you an accurate representation of, you know, where it is that I live. The other thing that I always think about whenever this, you know, rears its head, I'm always thinking about there's a, a wonderful speech that Steinbeck gave um, for his Nobel Prize for Literature where he said good literature approaches a universality of the human condition. Well, that's kind of what, you know, a good book or good stories are supposed to do is like, you know, reach into other cultures, reach into other societies like that and, you know, and give you, you know, a, a, an idea of what it's like to walk, you know, in those people's shoes like that. And so, you know, for me, it really gets kind of silly, you know, really quick. I mean, what what does that all mean? I mean, you know, does that mean that, you know, that, that you know, whites can't write about, you know, natives, that natives can't write about whites, that, you know, men can't write about women, women can't write about horses? It gets really kind of stupid really quick. Um, I think you're also robbing, I think, um, an entire art form of its ability to, you know, really convey that universality that I think is, you know, probably the only hope that we have as a species. Um, you know, we all kind of need to understand each other. And, you know, when you take that away, I don't know, I think you're taking something away that's pretty important. Uh, Vic Moretti, uh, you know, has had, a, uh, you know, growth experiences as well. Uh, tell me about, uh, tell me about uh, you know, Vic Moretti as, uh, as she currently stands. 
Well, you know, she's a character that, you know, you either love her or you hate her, like, you know, in the books. Like, um, you know, she's got language, you know, and that that sometimes turns a few people off like that. But, you know, uh, I think that, if, you know, if you spend time in a large, you know, uh, metropolitan area police department, you might develop some language every once in a while like that. And uh, I don't know, for me, when I first started writing the books, I knew that I needed a character that was an outsider. Um, I knew that if all of the characters, you know, were born and bred, and grew up and lived and you know had their careers you know in Wyoming. I was going to be in trouble like that because hopefully not everybody that was going to read these books was going to be from Wyoming. And so <clears throat> I needed to have an outsider, somebody who could ask questions that you know normally you would not be asked you know in that high context kind of relationship in life. And so I thought, well, okay, if you know this under if the sheriff, you know, is male, the under sheriff should be female. If, you know, the sheriff is, you know, rural, she should be urban. If, you know, Walt is very good at the the social implications of, you know, where it is that he lives, if he knows everybody and everything about the area, then maybe she would be more technologically, you know, advanced, you know, as far as forensics and ballistics and all of this, simply because she'd gone to, you know, the fifth largest, you know, police academy in the country. Like and so it was a good contrast as far as those characters concerned. If Walt's very careful about the kind of language that he uses, you know, when he's telling the stories, well, Vic's, you know, very specific about the kind of language that she uses, too. Um, but once again, you know, this is a relationship, you know, between these two individuals. And so, you know, you have to see where that's going to go and what's going to happen. And then the trick becomes trying to do things that, you know, aren't going to be predictable. Um, I think that's, you know, a key element, you know, to any kind of writing. Like, if you think it's going to be predictable, then don't do it. You know, do something different. You know, find another way to say it. Find another way to, you know, give us uh, an example of that relationship, you know, and have it go in directions that maybe um, we might not have anticipated. Like that. And I think that's, you know, a key element, you know, to the whole process. <laughs> Place is uh, very, you know, it seems very real. It's, it, you know, another character in the in the books, right? Absaroka County, uh, you know, fictional, but it seems very real. I wonder what, uh, you know, how you've developed that over time. And and I've I've wondered of, do you, did you think or have you thought since about you know Faulkner and his uh, Yokefitafa County? Uh, I'm in fact I'm looking at a, I just Googled it. I'm looking. There's a map of Yokefitafa County and. Mississippi, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it, 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 all his books are set there, right? It's very real. It seems very real. Uh, you know, uh, Absaroka County seems very real. Well, thank you. Look, at, I, I, it's been interesting like that because, you know, there is no 24th County here in Wyoming. But, yeah, um, an awful lot of the time, like, I'll get a lot of questions, you know, from people like that are, or people that are looking for it on the map trying to find it. And I have to tell them, you know, well, it doesn't really exist, you know. And uh, and the reasoning behind that, of course, was is I just wanted to, for, I'm sure the same reasons, you know, that Faulkner did it. I mean, it, it's certainly been done before. Um, but I think, you know, you, you, you really don't want to argue with people about the mo- minutiae you know of detail um, about everything like I mean the the way you know a good friend of mine who's a sheriff's deputy responded he says well I like to do it because I don't like have to argue with people and tell them that you're not writing documentaries for goodness sake and so it does give you that freedom like that to be able to you know move things around a little bit and and do the things that you want to do but you know you also have to be a little bit careful when you're doing that because you also want to make sure that you're giving an accurate representation of that place as it would be 
And, you know, for me, that that's always going to be a challenge. Like, I have to make sure, you know, not only, you know, is it a fictitious place like that, but, you know, there's an awful lot of aspects um, topographically uh, that, that, you know, I don't change in many ways. What I did was just kind of, you know, kind of like lump this, you know, this fictitious county down over top of uh, Sheridan and Johnson counties. Look at it. I actually had a luncheon, you know, with the uh, Office of Tourism for the state of Wyoming, and, you know, one of the ladies there said, well, we really love your books. And I said, well, thank you, you know, but do you mind if I ask why? And they said, well, because you actually use roads and you actually use trails and you actually use, you know, landmarks that we can tell people about and they can actually find just about every single thing that's ever happened in your books. And, you know, that, that you know, that's kind of, you know, reassuring to me like that because, you know, I, I'd hate to go completely off the diving board and not know exactly what it was that I was, you know, writing about. <laughs> Uh, let's take a break. Uh, overdue for a break, uh, and then we'll, when we come back, I want to talk a little bit about the latest book, "Daughter of the Morning Star." Also, want to talk a bit uh, about the book that's coming out in September as well. Uh, Craig Johnson is our guest, Wyoming-based writer of the Walt Longmire mystery novels. They're the basis for Longmire, the Netflix original drama as well. And we'll have more following this break. You're listening to Access Utah, and our guest for the hour is a Wyoming-based writer. Craig Johnson, author of the Walt Longmire mystery novels, and uh, of course those are the basis for the uh, Netflix uh, drama Longmire. Um, so, Craig Johnson, I want to talk a little bit about Daughter of the Morning Star. I'll just to read uh, a little bit of this, you know, s- synopsis. Uh, Sheriff Longmire is called out to assist tribal police in an investigation. Local basketball phenom Jaya One Moon Long is receiving death threats, and her sister was one of the many Native uh, women to go missing without a trace. Fear is that she'll be next. Um, what what inspired you to write Daughter of the Morning Star? Well, you know, it's been it's been uh, uh, thrilling to see like uh, that this is a problem um, that's finally getting you know a certain amount of traction. Uh, um, after all the years that that it's been going on, um, you have to remember that, like you know, whenever I first started uh, the idea for this book, you know, it tends to be a couple of years ago. Um, it takes a while for a book to you know come to fruition like that and finally make it out onto the shelves. Um, and so, with this particular book, like it was a couple of years back, uh, I was actually doing a library event up in Hardin um, with my buddy Marcus, like it, and uh, up on the Crow Reservation, and I happened to look um, in the entry way, and there was a bulletin board there, and it was a little bit heartbreaking. Like that, there was a missing persons poster, um, obviously homemade, that like somebody had done, you know, with a computer. And um, there was a young woman that was missing. There was an offer of a reward, you know, contact information, all this, and and as if that wasn't, you know, heart wrenching enough, like that the the son had, you know, gone around the glass doors in that entryway for the library and gone halfway across um, the bulletin board and halfway across that uh, missing persons poster. And the son, over the year or two that it had been hanging there, had faded away. Um, half of the woman's face, you know, so that only half of, of her face was there, half of the information, you know, and the, the poster itself was, you know, kind of wrinkled up and yellowed. And, and every time the door would open and close, it would like shudder, you know, almost like leaves on a tree. 
in the fall like that, and it was just kind of heartbreaking. And so I thought, okay, maybe this is this this seems like something that Walt Longmire would be you know involved in. So I started doing a little research, and you got to remember this is a couple of years ago, and uh, you know that was just when you know the, the the very beginning, as a matter of fact, did not become a national issue the way it has uh, now. Um, but you know there there is this issue with murdered missing Indigenous women that is something of a an incredible you know scourge that's been going on in Indian country. Um, I mean, it was over like 5,000 uh, native, you know, peoples that have gone like completely just dis- disappeared, just missing. And so I started doing the research on this and I thought, okay, yeah, this is definitely something that, you know, I want to try and take a, a crack at, you know, because whenever you're writing a novel, at least for me, um, clever ideas kind of come and go, but you have to think about what it is that you're saying, what's the message in what it is that you're doing. And you know, I thought this is a this is a very good cause. This is a very good uh, message to try and get some visibility, you know, out. And so um, I'm kind of proud of the fact, you know, that Daughter of the Morning Star is actually kind of assisted in you know getting that 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 message out, you know, that this is going on. As a matter of fact, with Longmire Days that we have here in Buffalo, we were able to you know give thirty thousand dollars to the uh, murdered missing Indigenous Women's uh, Resource Center up in Lame Deer. Um, it just, you know, it, it's, it's heart-wrenching. Like, but then, you know, of course, the question then is, is, like, if you've got a message and you've got a social issue that you want to, you know, give some import to, then you also have to have a story. You also have to have some kind of vehicle like, that's going to carry uh, that message. Like, and I had another friend of mine, uh, Tiger Scalpcane, who's the athletic director for the you know, Lame Deer Morning Stars, um, up in Lame Deer and uh, on the Northern Cheyenne Reservation, and he contacted us and said, "Hey, my daughter's you know playing in this basketball game Friday. Do you want to come up? Look at, and I'll get you tickets." And I was like, "Yeah, absolutely, we'll come up." And so we went up. Look at, and what was happening was is that it was Lame Deer playing lodge grass, and for those not in the know for our specific area, that's the Crow versus the Northern Cheyenne. And anybody who thinks that the Indian Wars are over needs to come and see a girls' basketball game. I've never seen so many hip checks, so many nosebleeds, you know, so many, uh, you know, elbows in my entire life. Like, and this was the girls' basketball teams, you know, playing each other. And I thought to myself, but the, 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 this might be the element that I need. I mean, watching those young women play. They were just so ferocious. They were just so, you know, into that game and trying to to win those games. Like at that, you know, I just thought, you know, this is something that uh, I can use. Like at this is something that can maybe bring the storyline across. I want to follow up a bit about basketball, but um, the, the statistics uh, are are you know just heartbreaking. Native women are six times more likely to be murdered than the national average. Native women three and a half times more likely to be raped or sexually assaulted. Uh, in fact, I was reading that you had to reassure your publisher that the stats were were accurate. <laughs> I did. Right? I did. I was um, I, I, when I first came up with the idea for the book. I mean, you know, generally what I'll do, like I'll write Viking Penguin and say, here's you know, just to kind of as a courtesy, like to give them an idea as to where what direction I'm going in, you know, with the next book. It's it's kind of interesting because being with a literary press, you know, I remember when the first you know, book came out, The Gold Dish, like at the the contract said that, you know, it must be a book and have, a mis- it must be a mystery and have Walt Longmire in it. And that was the only codicil that they had, you know, for the contracts. And, you know, 
but it, it, I always try and give them a little bit of a heads up like that. And uh, I wrote them all the statistics like that just to let them know that this was an actual situation that's going on and something that we could lend voice to. And they immediately wrote me back and they said, "You, these statistics can't be right. They must be wrong. And I'm like, no, these are from the Department of Justice. Like that. And uh, they are a, a reality that we're dealing with here on Indian country. <clears throat> uh, what do you suggest the, the, the average person do? What, what, what can we do to, to help? I guess uh, donate to the local you know, resource center? Oh, absolutely. I get anything you can do along those lines like that. And then, you know, just, you know, kind of like keeping, you know, uh, uh, in all honesty, like that, you know, the, the, the boots on the ground being aware that this is a situation um, and knowing like at what's going on like that. I mean, awareness, you know, means a lot. Um, and then seeing, you know, what's happened here in the last couple of years like that as far as um, uh, the, the, there's been much more of a, a cohesive, you know, response, you know, from law enforcement, whether it be local, you know, whether it be Bureau of Indian Affairs, whether it be tribal police, whether it be sheriff's departments or highway patrol or, you know, Division of Criminal Investigation or the Federal Bureau of Investigation itself. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting to see that a lot of effort has been, you know, gone into making a more cohesive um, response. And a lot quicker response too. Um, I think one of the problems that we ran into, like at an awful lot of the times, is that um, you know when somebody goes missing, like that there's generally like you know a, a 24 to 48 hour waiting period where you wait to see what happened. You know, well then then it goes to the tribal police. Like, well then if they don't make any headway, then it goes to the BIA, and then if they don't make any headway, then it goes to you know possibly local sheriffs, possibly the highway patrol, possibly state enforcement, and then finally by the time it gets you know the Bureau of Investigation like that, well, my gosh, that could be like months down the road. And as anybody knows, in a missing person situation, you know, you really need to be active in the first, you know, 48 hours or else it's kind of a lost cause like that. And uh, we're also talking about geography here, too, like that, you know, with a lot of these situations, you know, and once again, you know, Utah's in the same boat, you know, as Wyoming is like that as far as like, you know, some, you know, native reservations like that are the size of, you know, New England states. And, you know, the resources that are available, you know, to law enforcement, a lot of these situations are somewhat limited. And so I think just being aware and knowing that the problem exists, you know, and uh, and then, you know, trying to make a, you know, a conscientious effort, you know, to try and solve those problems, like to make sure that these these women don't go, you know, disappear and like disappear, you know, for without a trace, like that, without any kind of response. <laughs> Uh, you have said that uh, basketball in the reservation is something akin to a religion. Tell me about that. <laughs> well, you know, it's uh, it's one of those sports that, you know, you don't need, you know, uh, 50 people, you know, to play. And you don't need, you know, a lot of expensive equipment and all that kind of thing. Like, And so, you know, all you need is a hoop, you know, and a ball. Like, and, um you know, I guess the the term that's used an awful lot of the time is res ball, and uh, what res ball is is like a very extraordinarily fast moving version of basketball. Um, I mean, you don't have to tell you know the, these these players like that that they need to have a fast break or that they need to respond and rebound you know and get that ball back up the court um, or be set up you know in defense or all these things. It's a very spe- you know uh, specific style of basketball, um, and the other thing is it's like extraordinarily accessible. Like I said, you know. You just need a ball and a hoop, like it, and you got a game. And uh, it, it has transformed itself almost into something of a religion. Um, <laughs> excuse me, like you know, up on the reservation. And as I said, you know, it's a joy to watch, like because it kind of harkens back a little bit, 
you know, to the game that I remember, you know, back in the dark ages, you know, back, you know, when I used to do that type of thing. Um, an awful lot of the time, you know, the professional game nowadays really just doesn't seem like, you know, the game that I played, you know, where there was things such as traveling, there was, you know, crowding the lanes and picks and all these things that you were called on. Um, it seems like the professional game is all kind of like geared, you know, to just make as fast a game as they can possibly do, but um, there's really not a lot of technique involved, you know, and so um, when you go up and you get to watch these games, you know, up on the reservation, it's kind of a joy like that because, you know, not only is it a fast-moving game, but it's also a game that has rules like that, and, uh, you know, you better play by those rules or else you're going to lose that game and uh yeah there's a lot of uh a lot of uh you know res pride um that goes into these games as the the different reservations play each other um not only you know is it uh, nice to see these you know these teams you know playing for uh state championships and to see a lot of these players actually making it out and going you know into uh, the college game like that but uh you know boy there's a lot of a lot of game pride on the on the line there there are two ways about it <laughs> Let's take another break. We'll come back with our last segment with uh, Craig Johnson. Uh, latest book is Daughter of the Morning Star, and the next book up uh, out in September, Helen Beck. Um, we'll have more following this break. Thanks for, ex- uh, thanks for listening to Access U. Tom, Tom Williams. We have with us uh, the writer Craig Johnson. He's the New York Times bestselling author of the Walt Longmire mystery novels. They're the basis for Longmire, the Netflix original drama. And uh, we've been talking about Daughter of the Morning Star, which is the latest one out. The next book up is uh, Helen Back. That'll be released in September. I want to talk a little bit about that here in our last brief segment. Um, but before we do that, I, I, uh, I can't let the hour go by without uh, mentioning this. I was uh, reading another interview you did, and uh, this, <laughs> this makes me laugh thinking about this. Your friend Marcus Red Thunder, uh, who, as you said, is the uh, is the model for Henry Standing Bear in the novels. Um, you, you say you noticed that every once in a while he would fall into a B movie <laughs> Indian speak. Why, why was he doing that? Um, you know, he's he's got an incredible sense of humor like that, and um, that that's one of the things that I, I truly enjoy. Like, uh, you know, a couple of things I'm proud of, like that. You know, one, you know, I, I think that the television show Longmire gave more work to more native actors, you know, than the rest of Hollywood in the entire six years that we were in production. But the other thing is, is that you know, I, I really enjoy the native sense of humor, um, which you know, I have to say, you know, an awful lot of the times, like with Hollywood and and even though in literature, you know, native characters are portrayed as these like stoic, you know, how, you know, kind of characters, you know, monosyllabic, you know, kind of characters like it and that just that that's not 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 the people that I know. The people that I know have these incredible senses of humor and an incredible sense of irony. And, you know, if you're around them like that, you know, if you're not aware of that humor and that irony, you get to be the butt of that irony. And so I'm always very careful to be aware of it. And uh, my friend Marcus has an incredible sense of humor. And um he, you know, a lot of times I would notice whenever he would be doing, you know, a public event or speaking, he would kind of slip into this, you know, B-movie, uh, you know, no contraction, uh, you know, uh, speech pattern like that, you know. And, and I, I finally asked him one day, I said, well, why in the world do you do that? And he goes, just to piss white people off. <laughs> and so he's, uh, you know, he's not above, like, yanking the chain uh, just a little bit. And, uh, you know, for me, that, that that's an important point. You know, as far as that, you know, that that ability to to make sure that that voice is very very different. And with Henry, of course, you know, there's another couple of reasons. 
reasons, too. Like, he's very exacting. He's a very, very incredibly intelligent, very exacting individual like that. And so, you know, whenever he speaks, you know, he doesn't use those contractions. Um, and so, you know, for me, that's, that's part of the stock and trade of what it is that I do. Because when you write a novel, um, one of the things that I'm, you know, try to be as aware of as I can possibly be is that, you know, I tell writing students, you only get to describe a character one time um, in a novel like that, but that character is going to speak um, for the rest of that novel for 350 some pages. Like, and so if you want to differentiate that character, you know, you should really spend a lot of your time and efforts on making sure that their voice is what it is that's very distinct and different from anybody else. And, you know, that goes back to the he said, she said thing, um, where it seems to me that, like, you're almost like you're conducting a choral group. You know, each one of the voices is there for a specific reason, and you need to, you know, utilize them to the best of, of their abilities, like, uh, to, to define, you know, who it is that's talking. We just have about two minutes left uh, in the conversation. Uh, I want to have you talk a little bit about Helen Back. It's coming out uh, September 6th, the uh, publication date. Um, in this one, I'll just read a little bit of the synopsis or the, you know, the tease. Um, what if you woke up lying in the middle of the street in the infamous town of Fort Pratt, Montana, where 31 young native boys perished in a tragic boarding school fire in 1896? What if the only way you know, uh, your, who you are is because it's printed in the sweatband of your cowboy hat. So what if it says your name is Walt Longmar, but you don't remember him. And then uh, the, the thing that uh, sticks out to me, there's, there's uh, some of this in uh, Daughter of the Morning Star. You continue this. You talk about the wandering without, stealer of souls. Tell me just a little bit about that, just in two minutes. That I got from a good friend of mine uh, by the name of uh, uh, Leroy Whiteman. And that was actually, uh, I was sitting on his porch, like, and some of the, you know, his grandchildren were out running around out there in the pasture, you know, maybe getting a little too far from the house. And he said, you know, you better come back here. They it's a hey, mese, like, it will come and take you away. And I asked him, I said, well, what, what is that? Like that? And he said, well, it's, it's just a boogie man, you know, and you just tell kids that, you know, to, to make sure that they, you know, don't run off and go too far. And, and I said, well, you know, is there any kind of basis for it or anything? And he said, you know what, I've actually given that some thought. And his theory <laughs> was that uh, the wandering without basically was uh, a combination of all of the souls that had been abandoned or driven out um, from the native peoples, like at an awful lot of the time, um, that was what would happen. You know, if you, you, you did something horrible, you know, within the tribe, um, going back, you know, centuries, like at, they, they would literally drive you out. Um, well, you know, in you know the wilderness of the North American continent, being driven out, you know, from your tribe, it was pretty much a sentence of death, you know, in many ways. And so in his theory, you know, all of these lost souls had combined together um, to make the the wandering without the ovetse heomese, and that you know that there was a hunger you know in those souls you know a hunger for companionship a hunger for um, more human souls like and so it provided a spirituality uh, to the situation of you know missing persons cases um, that came up in uh, Daughter of the Morning Star, um, and then also gave me the opportunity to kind of deal with a different situation because it seemed like you know a lot of these things seemed to lead back to this place, you know, up in Montana, Fort Pratt, you know, where this boarding school had been, um, and gave me an opportunity also to, once again, you know, delve into a, a social situation, like in a history that, you know, is really kind of appalling, um, but, you know, a situation that was real, like that, and um, I thought, okay, 
you know, maybe Walt, you know, isn't done, you know, in this situation. By the time we get to the end of Daughter of the Morning Star, there there's some some threads, uh, some spiritual threads that seem to be, you know, stretching out to this place. And so he's going to have to go up there and try and find out what happened. Well, it kind of puts him in a dangerous situation he's never been before. Um, and I tried to think of, like, you know, what would be the worst? I literally thought to myself, what would be the absolute worst thing that you could have happen to yourself? Like, And that would be to not know, to not know who you are, where you are, what you're doing, or anything. And uh, and that's pretty much what happens to Walt. He wakes up in the middle of this street in this, like, tiny little town in Montana, um, covered in snow out in the middle of the street, like it, and doesn't know who he is or why he is or where he is. And um, the only way he knows is by picking up his hat and seeing the name Walt Longmire in the sweatband, like that, and then wandering into a cafe. And I guess the first you know, investigative process of this particular mystery is to find out who he is and why he's there. Yeah, it sounds fascinating. Uh, Helen Back is out uh, September 6th. Longmire Days is in August uh, coming up, and uh, you can uh, you can find out a lot more uh, about uh, the books and everything uh, by going to the website craigallenjohnson.com. Uh, Craig Johnson, always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Oh, absolutely. Like I always forget what a joy it is to be interviewed by you, and then all of a sudden in the middle of the interview, I remember just how much fun it is. So thank you, sir. Well, right, right back at you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, thanks, everyone, for listening to Access Utah. Skywatcher Leo T here as we look up, look around, and get a little bit lost in space. Did you happen to check out the new meteor event? I did a few times, and although I only saw one, it was pretty neat. Arcing across the sky below the handle of the Big Dipper, a green streak. The Tau Herculid shower did not produce a huge output, but anytime I'm looking in the southwest and seeing vibrating Antares, the orange-red giant just above the horizon like a warm fire crackling, and the trails of stars that make up Scorpio, and further north, east above the mountains, blue-white Vega, giving signs of sparkling hope. And the star trails between these and the Big Dipper, I'm glad I came out to look. Then on the west side of the sky, the twins Castor and Pollux with large capella lower to the right, and the fingernail crescent moon jumping up in the orange sunset above Antelope Island or the Moab Rim. It makes an animal here on Earth happy to be part of all this somehow, and the shooting stars, the ones that came from a new meteor shower, lit up the night sky in a rare display overnight Monday and Tuesday. As remnants from a shattered comet blazed through the Earth's atmosphere and the Earth clearly crossed a cloud of dust from the comet. Photos on the Skywatcher Facebook page along with sources for this episode. And scientists stumbled on a new way to study stars by taking advantage of meteorological satellites orbiting Earth. New data from a Japanese weather satellite that happened to observe red supergiant Betelgeuse during a period of interesting dimming. Leading to astronomers thinking she was going to blow up in supernova very soon, scientists still think that within the next 100 years, the big star will do just that. These lucky observations give astronomers a new tool as they learn how a red supergiant star loses mass and ultimately explodes as a supernova. It's many cultures, one sky. Last week, we related that high in the Andes of South America, the Milky Way is all about the flow of water as elevations drop from over 15,000 feet to sea level in a mere 100 miles. People are very aware of the movement of this life-giving liquid. Continuing this week with exploration in South America as we descend from the Andean highlands into the rainforested Amazon. The theme of sacred water persists as members of the Barasana tribe who hunt fish and gather in the northwest Amazon basin tell outsiders that they live at the center of the world. They've got good reason to since they reside on the equator and see the stars moving along vertical paths on either side of the east-west line observing the sun passing straight overhead on the first days of spring and fall. 
They call the stars the universe people, Unmari Masa. The most important universe people live along the Milky Way or the star path. The Pleiades, or star thing, we call them the seven sisters sometimes, is the woman shaman. When the star thing appears in November, she heralds the end of the rains and planting time. When the residents of the Milky Way light up the night sky at dusk in mid-November, Barasana men and women children sit in family groups outside their cluster of huts and gaze at the Milky Way. But they're not content to watch passively. The Barasana begin to dance to the Milky Way to urge the stars along in their courses. They form two lines of ten and dance in orbits around the center of the world, replicating the motion of the stars. They continue all night long, or having a little bit of fun, at least until the stars begin to fade from view in the morning twilight. So join the Barasana and dance to the glow and music of the Milky Way. Scott Watcher Leo T on UPR. Translator station statewide and online at upr.org.